place it comfortably. So good morning everyone. Uh, today I'd like to present a koan as a, as a Dharma talk. Um, and the name of the koan is Case 40 from the Gateless Barrier, um, Robert Aiken's version of it. And it's called Isan Kicks Over the Water Bottle. Great koan. Um, there's a saying in, in Zen which comes from a, a, a Chinese Zen teacher which is a very popular saying in, in Japan, every day is a good day. But the Japanese have added another line onto it because that sounds a bit too absolute. So the line they add on is, every day is a good day, but some days are better than others. <laughs> and you could also apply that to koans. All koans are good koans, but some are better than others. And this is one of the better ones. And it's a very, it's a very classic um, Zen koan that really captures the essence of what a Zen life is and what Zen practice is. So I'll read you the story. And all these, remember all these stories that the koans are based on um, developed out of some little pantomime that happened in a monastery years and years ago in China or in Japan. So the case... When Isan was with Hyakujo, Jahakujo's assembly, he was cook of the monastery. Hyakujo wanted to choose a founding teacher for Mount Takui. He invited all his monks to make a presentation saying, the outstanding one will be sent. Then he took a water bottle and set it on the floor and said, don't call this a water bottle. What would you call it? The head monk said, it can't be called a wooden clog. Hyakujo then asked uh, Isan his opinion. Isan kicked over the water bottle and walked out. <laughs> Hyakujo laughed and said, the head monk loses. Isan thereupon was made the founding teacher at the new monastery on the mountain. And Mumon's comment, Though Isan was altogether valiant, he could not leap out of Hyakujo's trap. If you scrutinise what happened next, you'll see that he accepted the heavy and rejected the light. How? Look. Removing his sweatband, he shouldered an iron yoke. What Mumon's comment was there, well, he might have won the day on, on the koan, but he took up the great burden of being the abbot of a monastery and a teacher. <laughs> there he was just... You know, there in the being a cook, chopping vegetables, just cooking, you know, getting the food out on time with his sweatband on, and a, and an iron an iron yoke is um, a bit of a, a um, Zen in joke. Do you know that the teacher wears an iron yoke because it's a pretty heavy responsibility? Uh -huh. So getting getting kicked upstairs is not necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. So but there's a backstory to this koan. And, and what the backstory is, is that Hyakujo um, had, a, had a friend uh, who was an itinerant monk, but he was also a, a geomancer. Do you know a geomancer is a person who can, like in ancient China, do you know, could, could suss out, do you know, where the, the sacred places were and, do you know, um, the energy of places and what was an auspicious place to, to have a monastery. <coughs> and so... Um, uh, he, the geomancer, this monk, told Hyakujo about this 
mountain that he'd found, the mountain in this story, and said it would be a good, really good place for a, a monastery, very auspicious place, very, very good energy, very strong energy. And um, so in private, Hyakujo said to um, Isan, said, I'd like you to be the abbot, to think you're mature enough in your practice for you now to be the abbot of this new monastery. But the head monk heard of this private conversation and because he was the head monk of the establishment, he said, well, hey, that's not fair. Do you know, I'm the head of the establishment. I, I should become the next abbot of the, the new monastery. So there was a, you know, a conflict going on behind the scenes. And so that's what led to this, to this koan, this little pantomime, because Hyakujo said, OK, well, well, we'll have a contest. We'll have a Dharma contest and whoever wins the contest um, becomes the, the abbot of the, the new temple. So he puts the water bottle in the middle of the floor. Um, don't say this is a, wa- a water bottle. What is it? Mm-hmm. And the head monk says, well, it's not a wooden clog. Mm-hmm. Um, Yamada Roshi, Robert Aitken's teacher commenting on, says, says it's, not, it's not too bad an answer, you know, but um, it's not really to the point. And what we, what we practice and what we cultivate in Zen all the time, and, and koans is just one of the ways we do this, is to not get caught up in the intellectual conceptualising mind. And as Robert Aitken, when I went over looking at his commentary on this in this book today, used the same words as I used the other day about binary, you know, that the the human cortex has this sort of very binary way of trying to understand. It's what we call dualistic thinking. Right, wrong, you know, um, enlightened people, deluded people, you know, um, male, female. Mm -hmm. And um, we're caught in that binary system all the time, which is very conceptual. And so Zen practice is about coming from um, a place of dwelling nowhere, you know, this non-binary experience in, a, in our being and coming forth with that. Mm-hmm. So the head monk response is a little bit too, got a little bit too much thinking involved in it. Mm-hmm. It's not really clear. And then along comes Isan. Now, if we think of, go back into the monastery, he's the cook. And all this commotion that's going out in the, in the dojo somewhere where he's, he's sweating behind the doors there cooking, you know, getting the pots going and, you know, making sure everything's on time. So he's just involved in his work, chopping the vegetables. And, um, and he's not even interested in this contest going out there. He just wants to chop the vegetables and get the lunch ready. Like just this, just this, just this task. And then someone says, hey, you know, Isan, you know, there's a contest coming on, you know, give your response. He goes, oh, damn it, you know, the, the rice might get burnt or whatever, you know. But off he goes and he comes out and he sees the water bottle and he kicks it over and he goes back and he does the cooking again, right? <laughs> Chops up a few more vegetables, you know, turns the rice over. No big deal, uh-huh. That's like this pure coming forth, you know, from, from nowhere with no, no idea of becoming the abbot or not becoming the abbot, winning or losing, right or wrong defeating someone, like there's, there's none of that, there's zero, right? He's just cooking. 
And someone says, come out and respond. So it goes out and responds. And this is the wonderful thing about Zen practice and living a Zen life. It's a life of action. It is a life of action. Do you know, it's not an intellectual life of, do you know, do you know obsessing over right and wrong and so on. It's about coming forth in everyday life with what we do, with just this, you know, dwelling nowhere, just this. And it could be driving a car, it could be chopping vegetables, it could be teaching at school or doing accounting, it doesn't matter what it is, but it comes forward as, as action that's not hindered by dualistic thinking. So, as the story goes on, um, uh, Isan then goes, leaves the monastery and he goes to the mountain. And as the story goes, he, he goes up to the mountain. He's just there by himself. He's got to attract all these students now to build a monastery. So he sits there for about five years by himself and nothing happens. Right? And he ends up just you know, talking to the birds and the monkeys and so on, you know, and, and then after a while, there's no one turning up and um, he says, well, maybe I better, be, better go down to the village again, down to the town, because, you know, what's the point of talking to monkeys? Right. So he wanders down the mountain pass and um, a tiger comes up behind him and his tiger in his teeth grabs him by the, the robe and pulls him, you know, nudges him back up the mountain again. It's like you're not going anywhere, mate. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. This is your task, you come back here. So he, he sits there patiently and eventually students come along, you know, and eventually a, a temple is built and it becomes a wonderful temple. So the issue is really um, how there's, there, are, there are koans, you know, and there, there is the passing of the koan with your own response, you know, that we role-play in the, in the Daisan room. In, in a sense, that's the easy part, right? But the next challenge is how you actually apply that in your everyday life. And in the, each of these koans has a, a poem, a, a verse as well. Tossing bamboo baskets and ladles away, he swept all impediments before him. Chakajo's severe barrier cannot interrupt his rush. Thousands of Buddhas come forth from his toes. So in your own life, how can thousands of Buddhas come forth from your toes? Mm-hmm. A little word on koans. Um, nearly all koans bind you in some way. Right? Like, don't call this a water bottle, what do you call it? Or one of um, one of um, Hyakujo's other koans was um, speak without, lo- lo- without moving your lips or tongue. Mm-hmm. Go straight on a narrow mountain road with 99 curves. What is mood? Does a dog have Buddha nature? No. Buddha said yes. No. Um, Joshua says, no, a bind. Right? So a koan is a kind of a bind and your challenge is to break out of the bind. 
Now, um, Cohen studies not everyone's cup of tea in Zen, but it's a when you've been through it, the curriculum like I have, you can see why it's been developed and why it is an important part of practice. But I'm not trying to push everyone to do that. Some people are just more comfortable with shikantaza, and that's fine. I'm, I'm not pushing anyone to do koans. But the value of koan work is that it, it puts you in this bind and you've agreed to be in the bind right, by taking up the koan, haven't been forced into it. And then what happens? Right? So you, you stay with this koan, what is move or the water bottle koan or whatever, and you, and you sit with it and then you, then you come forward with your own response. And we, we half-jokingly talk about koan practice as dharma show and tell. So you, you show a response, like his son did, by kicking over the water bottle, or you might say something that, that presents it, but usually the showing is a better response. And it's important, it's not just the content or the point of the koan, it's how you express it as well. Like it, it's not just doing it half-heartedly. It's like, it's like being a good, a good actor on stage, you're 100% in there doing it. And, um, and it's really not the points of the koan which are really the main game here. In many ways, it's the process. Mm -hmm. Now, to go back to the koan, um, what happened to the head monk? You know, what we know what happened to Isan. He, he was the winner of the contest and he went on to become the abbot of a, a great temple. But what about the head monk? You know, he'd been diligent, serious student for a long time, you know, credible student. And then he wants to be the head of the, of the monastery. He <laughs> loses the contest. So what does he do? Right? He, he's lost the contest. Right? Now, what we understand of him is he went on to become a great teacher himself and an abbot as well. But what would have happened, do you know? So he's made a mistake. You know, he didn't, didn't win. What are all the reactions if we put ourselves in his shoes and not just, not just identify with Isan as the winner of the contest? What if we put ourselves in the shoes of the head monk who's just lost, right? And his great aspiration was to be an abbot of a, of a temple. Well, he could go in various ways, couldn't he? He could just sulk, go away and sulk, you know, and be a passive-aggressive nuisance in the temple for the rest of his day, right? Um, or he could get angry, outwardly angry, or he could say it wasn't fair or whatever. Um, but one assumes that he grew through this experience, you know, and he stayed with the difficulty of it until he matured. Mm -hmm. And th this is what's involved in Cohen practice as well. Um, particularly intellectual people, highly intellectual people often struggle with koans because they've relied on their, their thinking processes so much and have been rewarded by it so much um, in a secular sense during their life. And then when they come to koans and they give a response, 
and the teacher rings his bell and says, no, go back and keep working on it. What are the reactions various people have around that? You can, some people I've seen go, well, I'm not doing this, you know, I'm not putting myself in this, this trap. There's kind of an arrogance there about it, intellectual arrogance. And how would he know anyway? You know, he hasn't got a PhD. It's kind of like, that's the kind of reaction that can come out of that when the, the teacher says, no, no, not OK. Um, other people may go away and then when the teacher says no and they spiral down in a whirlpool of disappointment and anger at themselves. And then they come, because that's where they've gone, they come back and have a response to the same kind again and it's even worse, right? <laughs> so it spirals down and down and down. So it really challenges our emotional reactions when we, when we work on a koan. But there's another problem as well. So some people can come in and it's a challenge to their intellectual arrogance, right? But other people take up Zen practice, whether it's through koans or not. And their problem is they're too timid. Right? And being too timid is, is afraid of making a mistake, you know, and being embarrassed by it and so on. And so that's, that's one reason sometimes people drop out of koan study or they don't take it up in the first place because there's a timidity, like a, a fear of holding them back, holding themselves back. And these are, these are two polarities that we need to deal with in our, in our life or in our character and in our sin practice. We can be over here on one extreme, you know, with too full of ourselves, you know, and, and, and um, too much air in our tyres, or we haven't got enough air in our tyres, you know, and we have this sense of, I couldn't do this, I might be wrong, I might be seen to be wrong. And in some ways... Um, it takes, uh, this is the word that came to mind to me the other day, it takes a bit of chutzpah to do koan work, right? Uh, chutzpah is, um, it's actually, I found out from a Jewish friend, it's actually Jewish in origin, and it's actually pronounced chutzpah, but we call it chutzpah. But it means to be bold, you know? So there's a certain boldness which is required to do koan study. It's like you, you come in there and you, you give your best response and you give it 100% and it might be okay, but then you go out feeling a bit silly, do you know? It wasn't it. I've been through it all, so I, I know. It's not as though um, I just sailed through it, you know, and came out the other end. I, I've, I've been through all of that and all the reactions that come with it. So I understand what it's like to go through it. But that's what it challenges. If, you, if you're leaning towards the arrogant side, it will challenge your arrogance, the sense that you're right. Yeah. Um, but if you're timid, it'll also challenge that as well. And this is what we need to bring into our everyday life. Um, it's not just a, a calm samadhi power, um, but where, we, where, where we're going deeper is we're, we're touching this place, call it emptiness. It's not a mysterious place. It's just that place of no concepts, you know, not getting caught up in right and wrong and better and worse, etc. It's just no mind. Right? Might be thoughts coming through, but you're not caught up in them. It's going to that place and it's acting from that place. 
as much as we can in everything that we do in our life. Bringing up children, working, being in a relationship, walking along the beach, sailing, whatever it might be. And in Zen training in Japan in particular, but I think it also transfers over into Western Zen, in Japan Zen is associated with a lot of um, arts like tea ceremony or archery, you know, or pottery or calligraphy, whatever. And so all of those artistic expressions from a Zen perspective is dwelling nowhere and letting the mind come forth. Right? That is what, that's a saying that comes from the Diamond Sutra. Dwell no, dwelling nowhere, let the mind come forth. So the Zen archer dwells nowhere, not even trying to hit the target, you know, and then out of nowhere just lets it go. And the arrow hits the target. Or the potter, just sort of relaxed, focused, wheels spinning round and it kind of the, the pot makes itself. Mm-hmm. So it's getting out of our own way. So this kind of unhindered action happens in the world. And it's probably useful as an adjunct to our sin practice to to take up an art of some kind, you know, whether it's something that involves action like, like dancing or playing music or singing or pottery or calligraphy. It doesn't have to be Japanese. Mm-hmm. But it's a way of learning to be relaxed, be focused and come forth and make mistakes, right? And not be timid and not be self-righteous. Come forward, make mistakes, learn from the process until the unhindered mind starts to come forward more. It's a good practice. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the Irish music group that Catherine and I go to, there was a teacher from, met the leader of the group many years ago, said something that really stuck in my mind because I thought that applies to Zen students as well as musicians. But what he said, he was talking about um, a person from many years ago, 10 years ago, who came in as a beginner and then started learning a, a very difficult instrument, which is the alien pipes. And he said, this person, XYZ, he, he said he became very competent on it. And one was he practised a lot, right, which is common sense. But the other thing he said, he was willing to make an idiot of himself. And I thought, that, that applies exactly to Zen practice. Practice a lot, but be, be willing to take the risk, be willing to let the mind come forward and even make mistakes. And then instead of making the mistakes, dismissing them or getting angry or whatever, it's developing that character to stay with it, right, until something becomes more fluid. Now, there are some... Um, I've deliberately in these um, Dharma talks um, making a few sound bites for to take away to remember just some little phrases that you remember in, into your everyday life. And one is from the other day, uh, strong back, soft front. Um, another one you may or may not wish to remember um, is when to eat a shit sandwich. And the other one I'd like you to remember is dwelling nowhere, let the mind come forth.
Now, a final word to say on that. Um, the other day I was mentioning about um, how the practice is a container and we need to maintain the boundaries of um, the practice of what we're doing so we do everything together and harmonise together. And I need to emphasise again um, that one of the one of the essential practices of doing a session is silence. You know, so it's not casual talking, it's not laughter or raucous laughter or anything like that. And it's very important we rein it in and we, we contain it. it. At the time, it might seem like it's just the mind dwelling no, nowhere and coming forth just to laugh and so on. Um, but when we do that, it's like the c container loses all of its energy, it just oozes out. And um, we need to remember that the, it's not just following a tradition, it's quite serious to take up these guidelines of um, not talking, no eye contact, etc., etc., um, because they, it's what deepens our practice and leads us to this place of dwelling nowhere, right? So we can come forth in an authentic kind of way. And remember, not only is, is your own energy leaking out if you do this, but it's affecting others. And it's affecting others. Some people are, in, are going through suffering, you know, um, and when there's laughter and so on, it just disrupts them or, or casual talking. And some people may not be in suffering, but they're in a, they're in a very clear, sensitive state of mind, you know, and they don't want it disrupted. And they didn't come to session for that. Um, so please remember to take these guidelines seriously for the rest of the session, you know, and, um, and just focus on what you're doing one thing at a time. There's a place for laughter, you know, and it comes out of joy and it comes out of dwelling nowhere. It's fun. Um, there's plenty of time for it after session, but not within session. self-centred dream, only suffering, holding self-centred thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only future, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centred dream, only suffering, holding to self-centred thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion flow. Caught in the self-centred dream, only suffering, holding to the self-centred thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion flow.